Welcome to Radio Lab 201, the podcast from Benjamin Franklin High School. I had a guest in my class recently, a speaker from Google, and I have to say this, my students learned in 45 minutes what would have taken me probably a whole week to unpack. We were talking about coding and data privacy. There was something about digital financial transactions, encryption, security breaches, and uh, white hat hackers, which really excited everybody. And of course, he was part of a startup, so he had he talked about his background. Now, what's interesting is my speaker was someone who worked with me when I was at ASU. His name is Patrick Krecker, and he joined Google about five years ago. And what my students learned from him was really timely because, you know, previous week we had just completed units on the roots of the net and how when we access the web or what we think of is the web, we are probably accessing so much of that has been indexed by Google. And so much of what has been indexed by Google would probably not be possible if not for a man named Tim Berners-Lee, who was one of our inventors that we studied about. Now, web history aside, Mr. Krecker, he really took on the students' questions because they asked him some really pointed ones when you think about it. You know, the hot button issues such as, uh, what does Google do with our data? And why is there so much of hacking these days? They even asked him about ransomware because that has been a lot in the news recently, especially even with schools. So Patrick, he basically pulled out all the stops, talked about the security holes and uh, what they do and what he looks out for because he's working on a financial app. Actually, he was working on uh, Google Pay. And to him, security holes are really, really risky and important. He talked about the pursuit of hackers and the role of white hats. And uh, I think I let him do the talking because he said quite a bit and you'll really enjoy this. Hello, everyone. My name is Patrick. I work at Google, as your teacher said. Um, my background is that I uh, grew up in Tempe, uh, went to school at Kyrene Del Norte. Uh, I went to high school at Marcos Deniza, and then I went to college at ASU. I studied computer science and math, and I worked with Angelo at, um, or sorry, Mr. Fernando, at, uh, uh, at ASU uh, at a research center called Decision Theater. Um, and during my time at ASU, Actually, during during middle school, um, I learned to code and uh, I kept coding as much as I could. And in high school, I took some programming classes. And then when I was in college, in addition to my studies in computer science, I, I worked at ASU writing code. Um, and I was just trying to get as good at coding as I could by doing it as much as possible. Um, and after I graduated, I moved to Silicon Valley and I worked for uh, startups. I had always dreamed of working at Google and uh, eventually I decided that it was time to uh, try something new. So um, I interviewed at different companies and I was very fortunate to get offered a job at Google. Um, so what I work on at Google um, is uh, I'm a programmer, I write code. Um, at every software company, anytime you use an app on a phone or anything like that, um, the app uses the internet um, to talk to servers. So when you type a chat message, the way that the chat message gets to your friend 
um, from your app to their app is your app sends it to a server and then the server sends it to your friend. And uh, what I work on at, uh, in particular is the app called Google Pay. Google Pay is an app that lets you buy uh, things in stores using your phone. So you go to get your, you, you pick out what you want, you go to check out, cashier rings you up, says time to pay. And instead of giving the cashier money or a credit card, you can actually take your phone and tap your phone on uh, the terminal and pay that way. So that's that's what I work on right now. Okay, thank you. That That's a good uh, summary of what you do and how you got there. Now, uh, one hard for people to grapple with, you talked of servers. Yeah. We talked about the internet being a whole lot of hardware and software randomly connected together, and the web is like a different layer on top of it. Mm -hmm. So would you, could you describe like what you do, Patrick, is it on, uh, when you say on servers, would you say that it's on the internet or is it on the web? Yeah, so um, it's an interesting question. Um, and um, the, the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> um, so the way that it works is to, to my understanding is that internet is, um, as you said, a network of computers that lets them send data between each other. And the web is sort of like, the way I think about the web is, the web is like websites. So without the internet, the web doesn't exist. But the internet, the internet powers the web as well as it powers other things. So I think technically, um, the apps that we use are um, not really on the web. Um, they they use the internet, um, but they the 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 web is what we call a, a protocol, and um, a protocol is just some um, instructions on how the computer, how two computers should talk to each other. And the protocol that your web browser uses is different than the one that the app uses. Protocol? Now that's a word I had to ask Patrick to explain to my students and what it means in his world. So yeah, it's, it's making me think back because I graduated about uh, 11 years ago. So, <laughs> um, so protocol is, um, the, the way you think about it is, um, let's say you use protocols in your daily life. Um, and uh, for example, when you um, take a test and um, you know a test, think about it, it's just a way of you sending a message from, from you to your teacher, right? You, your message is your answers to the, to the questions. And so um, the test usually has a format, right? in the format, you know, you may have a multiple choice test, you may have a free answer test, you might even have a test where you have to draw lines between things to mark your answers. So I would say the format of the test is kind of like a protocol. And if you have a multiple choice test where you have to bubble things in, that's one kind of protocol. And if you have a test where you have to write your answers out, that's like a different protocol. So a protocol is a set of rules that two computers use to communicate with each other and it's it, they're agreed upon in advance, and um, different sets of rules have different features. For example, if you have a multiple choice test, that means that there's only four possible answers or, or five possible answers per question. However, it's very easy for the teacher to grade. If you have a free answer test, you can you can express yourself uh, much more robustly. However, it takes the teacher a lot longer for you to grade. So there's always trade-offs in protocols. Um, so how is, is that a good answer? I like the way he broke it down to something very relevant to a multiple choice test. 
But then how does security happen in this protocol-based world? When you're handling money, uh, you need to be very um, careful to make sure that it doesn't get lost, um, which is a more common problem than you would think. Um, so the classic example is, um, let's say um, you, uh, let's say we're going to have some money move between two people. And so we send a message to the bank saying, please move this money. Uh, and a classic problem is that usually the bank says, okay, I moved the money. We ask the bank to move the money. Bank says, we moved the money. Let's say we send that message to that bank and we never hear back. So the issue is what do we do? Because what if the bank got the message? So some message got dropped, right? But what if the bank actually got our message to move the money, but when they sent us the message that says, okay, back to us, the okay is what got dropped. So what that means is that the money got moved and we shouldn't do anything. Or let's say our message to move the money got dropped, the bank never heard from us. We can't tell the difference from where we're sitting. All we know is that we sent this message and we just never heard back. So we have to decide what to do now. And uh, there's a few tricks that we use to deal with that, but uh, that's probably the, one of the classic examples in payments. Is to, we call that a uh, double, uh, double spend. Now you're probably noticing that there's some distortion in the background and I must apologize. Patrick was actually talking to us on a Google Meet call, but that didn't stop him or my students. And uh, they went into programming and asked him a lot of questions about how, how does he actually work? When you, so someday, someday you, you, you probably write a program that for class of some kind, it's almost certain that, that someday you're gonna be writing at least a simple program. And a simple program that you'll write in your class, the, the classic one is something that just prints hello world onto the screen. That program will probably be somewhere around 20 to 40 lines of code. So that's that's like a simple, very simple program. Um, so that's like 20 to 40, that's like the smallest thing you could write. Now in my time at Google, I, I just looked it up. I've, I've written about um, 200,000 lines of code at Google in my time. So, uh, so that's like a lot more, right? That's like a lot, that's a lot of code. Um, so I've written 200,000. Now all of Google is about um, 2 billion lines of code. So that's like pretty hard to even imagine because um, it's like I've written um, like less than 0.1% I've worked you know, hard for three years and it's like less than 0.1% of all the code at Google, it comes from me. So um, so it's a lot of code, it's 2 billion lines of code um, and it it's pretty hard to explain. It's even hard for me to understand how much code it is. It's just so much. And to put that in perspective, I've actually, I've written about 200,000 lines and I've also deleted 200,000 lines. So I've actually deleted a lot of code as well. And despite, and everyone tries as hard as they can to delete code. And even so, the amount of code at Google is just going up all the time. Why would you delete code? Well, you delete code, it's kind of like um, cleaning up um, your house. So it's like if you imagine, let's say, um, let's say you're an electrician and you change the wiring in the house. It's important to like remove the old wiring because otherwise it'll just like get in the way whenever you try to do something. So it's like the same thing when we write new code that does something different, that works in a different way, we always make sure to delete the old code that does it the old way. And it just makes it easier to, to kind of maintain, they call it, to maintain things. At this point, I had to ask him a question that came from a student in another class in another period. 
and this was about uh, what happens with their data. What do you guys do with our information? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, so Google actually um, doesn't sell uh, information. Um, it's a something that's surprising to people, but um, any information that goes into Google stays in Google. Um, so what do we do with it? Well, um, we keep it very safe. Um, we have a very, uh, we have the world's best security team um, working at Google. And we also have very strict rules about how information is accessed. Um, and we have, um, if you imagine, it's almost like accessing, so Google's a very open company. Um, like you can get into any office if you work there, there's no real restrictions on what kind of uh, information you can know. But the one place where Google is not open is with user data. And when, when it comes to user data, it feels like you're in the Pentagon or something. It's like, you have to get access to do anything, to get access to any kind of data. You only get the access for a short amount of time and then your access gets revoked and all the all everything you access gets deleted. So um, I would say Google works really, really hard to keep uh, your information safe. Okay, so that, that gets into another interesting area which we won't get into too much, but that's on privacy because we, that's yeah. a topic that has come up in class a lot. Privacy of uh, information, PII, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the, I'm just going to mention the name of the person who asked that interesting question was Luke Boyer. And uh, there's another person, Ben Madrigal. He's not in the, this class at this moment. And he has asked us about privacy, but he said, do you have people who are hired specifically for preventing information getting hacked? Yeah, the answer to that question is yes. Google has, um, uh, in my, I mean, in my opinion, the best security team in the world um, working for us. And we take, we do a lot of things to keep information safe. So we've we have um, multiple layers of security teams. So when, whenever I do anything, I work with the security team um, that helps make sure that whatever I did is secure. But you know, they're never perfect. So sometimes things get through. So in addition, Google has a security team that um, they call it, they, it's called penetration testing is what this is called. And what this team does is they're basically hackers who work at Google, who try to hack into Google. And they, they actually try to hack into the stuff that I did. And sometimes they send me emails saying, Patrick, we found this security hole in your code. Can you please fix it? And so I fix it. And, and I think, wow, I'm so glad that people, my security team found it and not a hacker. Um, and then the last thing that Google does is um, Google actually looks for security holes in other people's software. So Google actually finds holes in Apple uh, iOS, in Microsoft Windows, in Internet Explorer, um, and helps those companies to close those holes. Um, and I think um, the reason is that Google just sees um, when the internet is, a, is more secure, it's better for everyone. It's better for Google when the internet's more secure, but it's also better for everyone. So that's why we um, work so hard on security. Okay, great, great to know. Very comforting, let's put it that way. And by the way, there were some questions by Jaja uh, Shelbourne, Salim El Safdi, and Riley Shira. And I'm going to summarize some of their questions, uh, uh, which was, you answered that, how did you get the job? What specifically do you do there? And here's one 
by Brooklyn Chastin who says, what is your favorite part of working at Google? And what is your job? Like, I suppose what she knows, what is your title and what do you yeah. like most about it? Okay. Yeah, I mean, um, I will I'll just give a little more information about how you get a job. Um, the way you get the job is the interview. Um, and the way that um, and during the interview, what they do is they usually ask you um, just some, some kind of tricky questions uh, to see how good you are at coding. Um, so that's how I got the job. And um, what do I do? Well, I, I mostly write code. Um, we, I design software. So designing the software, it's a little bit like designing a house. You have to like, before you build the house, you have to like kind of design what it looks like, uh, design how the floors are going to look and how the walls are going to look. And then in addition to designing it, I also build it. Um, so that's like a, a little bit different than the way houses get built is that when you're a software engineer, you design the software and then you also have to write the software. So the students were focused on security risks. And uh, one of the questions was, what does this thing called a security hole he referred to? What does that involve? Yeah, well, they, they can come in a lot of forms, but let me give you an example. So um, one example would be, let's say you your friend sent you a link to a cat video and you click this cat video and then the video loads um, and then you get an email saying that money was transferred from your bank account um, and it turns out that your bank has a security hold called security hole called it's called cross-site scripting and what the what it, the way it works is when that cat video loaded, that's just a way of distracting you. And inside of that website was um, some code that called your bank and asked your bank to transfer some money. Um, and as simple as it sounds, these attacks are actually very can be very sophisticated, and they can actually be very very hard to to to, to track to to catch. And they're they're actually very common. Um, Cross-site scripting, the, the the acronym is XSS, and um, uh, that's 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 a really nasty security hole that shows up sometimes. There are many more, um, but that's just an example. So they were not ready to let him off the hook with cat videos. They wanted to know what else happens after that. Um, hi, my name's Adley. Um, I was just gonna ask when after you write a code, when you or the security team put up well security, how do you? you specifically do that? How do we make sure that the code is secure? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the, 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 um, let me think about how to answer this. Um, so what Google does is, um, let's think about it in terms of, um, a bridge. And you think about when you're building a bridge, um, and you ask the question, how do you make sure the bridge isn't going to fall down? Right? Like, so they build the bridge and it looks okay. Um, but, uh, how do you know that it's not going to fall down? And the answer is that you, when you build the bridge, you follow, um, a process and the process has guidelines for things like what kind of concrete do you use? What kind of metal do you use? How long can the bridge be? Those kinds of things. So when we write software in order to try to make it as secure as possible when we first write it there's a process that we follow when we write the code that if we follow this process the code should not have any security holes 
And when I work with the security team, the main thing that they do is make sure that I followed the process when I was writing the code that I should have been following, which is trickier than it sounds. It's like, a, it's like complicated. Um, so so that the answer is that we, we have a kind of a process that we follow. Um, and, and then um, of course we still miss things. So that's why we also have the penetration testing. Uh, hello, my name's Cameron. Hi. Uh, going back to the coding, the hole in your coding, um, has it ever happened where a hacker gets to it first? Yes, um, it has happened. Um, however, uh, I've never um, seen any user data. So the, the, the kind of worst thing that can happen is if any user data is compromised. So I have never, um, I've never had a, a security hole where any user data was compromised. Um, but we have had minor security holes where people could um, people could make it look like a payment was coming from someone who it wasn't coming from. Um, and that hole was found by, it wasn't actually found by a, I mean, it was found by a sort of, they call them a, they call it a white hat ha hacker. So it's, it's like a friendly hacker. So it's not someone who works at Google, but it's someone who hacked in and then told us about the hack. And we actually have a reward program where if you tell us before you disclose it, and also as long as you don't exploit the hole that you found, then we'll pay you a pretty, pretty good amount of money. So um, that person found the hole and then told us about it. And then we gave them, we paid them and then we closed the hole. And so no, user data was compromised, but that was probably the closest thing to like a real security hole that we found. Wow, that's interesting. White hat hacking, yeah. There were many other questions, but uh, here's the last one that I picked for this podcast, which was uh, an interesting way and a fitting way to end this. Um, hi, my name's Ray. Hi, Ray. And, uh, I was wondering, what was the most complicated project you've programmed or coded? Um. So the most complicated project I worked on um, was um, we taught a computer at my old company. We actually taught a computer to be able to read uh, laws, like like laws that govern what you can do and what you can't do. Um, and as you might guess, um, you always hear about people going to court and suing each other and stuff. Well, that's because the laws are sometimes um, hard to understand and hard to interpret. With that, we had to let the Googler go back to his job. That was Patrick Cricker. And uh, thank you again for listening to Radio 201, the podcast from Benjamin Franklin High School. See you next time.